Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. A CEO making seven figures. A working single mom with two kids. A recovering heroin addict. I have been to their church. A former street kid from Mexico City, a surgeon, an ex-convict. I've been to their church. Marine Corps veteran, an undocumented immigrant, a widow of 20 years. I've been to their church. A junior hire on the autism spectrum, an air traffic controller, a freelance photographer. I've been to their church. Where are all of these churches? They're right here. If you look down the row that you're sitting in, that might be who you see. Their church is Christ Community Church. We're currently in a teaching series in the New Testament book of Acts. We've been following along with our all-church Bible reading plan called Bible Savvy. And if you haven't done so yet, I'd encourage you to be reading along as we go through the second half of the book of Acts. We've been calling this series Road Trip, following the spread of the Christian movement and message across the Roman Empire, going from city to city on the road trip that turned the world upside down. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. The book of Acts follows a pattern laid out on the very first page of the book. It's just three simple parts. The Christian message goes to the city of Jerusalem, then to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, to people from every nation and culture. And we're in that third section now with this story. And in the third section, the main character here is the apostle Paul, a guy we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And he goes on several journeys, several trips around the Roman Empire, and he goes specifically to cities where the gospel has never been preached, and he starts church communities there. This is his second such journey, and it's around 49 or 50 AD, and he goes to the city of Philippi, the city of Philippi. It's the first city in Greece to ever hear the message of Jesus. Now, anytime the gospel went to a new place, a huge variety of people would respond, people from every walk of life. And as we're going to see in Philippi, this is a perfect example of the whole range of who might respond to the gospel. We're going to see a wealthy businesswoman at the top of society, a slave girl with a dark past from the bottom of society, and a working class veteran from the middle of society. And when these people respond to the gospel, instantaneously they become part of the church family. And within the church community, they are now social equals. It is hard to exaggerate how strange this would have been in the ancient world. Roman society was very, very stratified. These are people who, if they interacted with each other in public, did so not as equals, not as peers. And this part of what made the Jesus movement so, so radical. It turned the world upside down because it brought together people from all of these different socioeconomic statuses in a way that subverted their status in the outside world. And that was very messy, very difficult. Before we get into the passage in Acts, I want to read to you a letter that Paul wrote to this community, to the community of Philippi, about how they could live as this strange new community mixed up in ways that had never been done before. What is it going to take for those people to live as one? This is what he says, Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Around here, so many of us have discovered that when we hear these words, we're not just hearing human words, we're hearing the word of God. So let's thank him for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's how I'd sum up Paul's message to the church in Philippi. Use your power and privilege for the sake of others first. Use your power and privilege for the sake of others first. It's helpful to think about the kinds of power you might have. Some of us, we have power because of the roles that we're in. We've got authority because we're a, a boss or a parent or a cop or a coach. Some of our power comes from our relationships. We have influence on other people as their friend or their business partner, their classmate, their brother, their daughter. We have some power through our expertise. We have a skill or knowledge of something, whether that's knowledge of an industry or skill in writing computer code or knowledge of a language. Some power comes from money. It gives you the ability to do more things. Some of what we have is cultural power, being part of a, a privileged group because of your race or gender or citizenship. But what kind of power do you have? Whatever power you have, that power, how you use it, will either foster community or it will destroy community. And it all depends on whether or not you use it for the sake of other people before yourself. Now, as we read through Acts chapter 16, we are going to see this principle at play. We're gonna see examples in the founding of the church at Philippi of what it looks like to lay down your power and privilege for the sake of other people. So let's start reading in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So when Paul and his companions arrive in Philippi, they meet this woman named Lydia. She is a Gentile, but she's interested in Jewish spirituality. She, she's a lot like Cornelius that we talked about last week. She worships Israel's God. She studies Israel's scriptures. And probably on a daily basis, she gathers with this group of women down by the river to pray. She's likely a widow. The fact that the passage talks about her having a household and a business, uh, but doesn't reference her husband, probably means that she was married, uh, but, that, but she lost her husband, but still retained the business. And because of that business, she is wealthy. She's a purple dealer. And here's the reason I know that she is wealthy. It's because there are no purple flags. You ever notice this? Okay, 195 countries in the world and only three of the national flags have any trace of purple in them. Isn't that a little bit odd? Uh, coincidentally, one of the flags that has purple in them is one of our international impact partners, Nicaragua. And it's just a little strip of purple in kind of the center emblem there, not very much. What, why is it that countries don't use purple in their flags? It's because in the ancient world, purple was incredibly hard to get. The only way they knew in the, the Roman Empire how to make purple was using a, a certain type of snail that lived in a certain region. And it actually took about 10,000 snails to make a single gram of purple dye. And that was just enough to sort of dye the edge of a robe or something like that. And so the reason purple is associated with royalty is because they're the only people who had enough money to actually get it. And the reason you don't use it on a flag is because what country could afford to deck out their entire country and uh, outfit their army with purple? It just didn't make sense. 
So if Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth, it means she's gotta be fairly wealthy. Her clientele are from the upper echelons of society. Now, this all changed in 1856. There was a guy named William Henry Perkin. He was a scientist. He was working to make a medicine for malaria, but he made a mistake. And on accident, he discovered synthetic purple dye. Uh, That is the reason my four-year-old can wake up every day and deck herself out from head to foot in her two favorite colors, pink and purple, and walk downstairs and not break the bank. Coincidentally, that four-year-old, her name is Lydia. (laughs) So Paul and Silas, they're talking to Lydia. And in verse 14, it says this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about how God is a pursuing God. He's chasing down people. He's wooing them, winning them over. And the reason you and I can speak to anybody boldly about Jesus is because we believe in a God who can open up people's hearts to respond to the message. And that's what he did with Lydia and with her entire household. Now, I should probably explain what we mean by household here because probably you're imagining something different than what was going on here. In our culture, a household is a nuclear family. It's mom, dad, few kids, maybe a grandparent lives with them. Usually the number of people in a home numbers in the single digits. But in the ancient world, the household included three or four generations of extended family. Uh, Adult sons with their wives and their children usually remained in their father's household until their father died. A household also included any slaves or servants that worked for the family. To be the head of a household was a lot more like owning a small business because that's actually what it was. You were running a family business with all of these people involved. So when Paul speaks to Lydia's household, he's speaking to this group of people, most of which probably are adults. And they hear the gospel and they believe. And in verse 15, it says, they were baptized. They were baptized. Have you caught this pattern? In the book of Acts, when people surrender to Jesus, they get baptized at the first available opportunity. If you haven't done that, make sure you do that at our next baptism service. Now, apparently, Lydia's heart didn't just open up to God. It also opened up to God's people, which is what caused her to open up her home to Paul and his companions. Lydia looked at the wealth that she had. She looked at what God had given her, the power and privilege that came from that in her society, And she said, what can I do with this? How can I use this to serve other people first? And what she realized is that wealth is for welcoming. Wealth is for welcoming. It's the reason why God gives us money, so we can welcome others into the benefits that that money brings. Sometimes that's a literal welcome. It means having people over to your home, having a meal, having conversations, letting someone stay with you when they're going through a hard time and they just need someplace to crash. I think about some members of my community group a couple who over the years has welcomed in a number of people who just were going through something hard. They, they did safe families. And so they've had children stay in their home for a time so that their parents could get back on their feet when something rough happened in their life. They welcomed in a woman who was pregnant so that she could have her baby and have a place to stay and live so that she didn't have to have an abortion. They're currently in the process of adopting a child. And the reason they did this is not because they've got some extraordinary wealth. They're pretty normal people, uh, normal income, normal home in this sort of community. But they looked at normal around here and said, you know what? Normal is more than enough to meet our needs and the needs of our children. We can do more with this. What do we do with the wealth that God has given us? We use it to welcome other people. Uh, This is what Lydia was doing for uh, Paul when she invited them into their home. But what she was doing was more than just offering some weary travelers a place to stay. She was actually opening up her home to actually become the home base for the new church community that was being born in Philippi. 
If you read to the end of the passage, you see this very clearly. All of the believers are gathered in her home. And it's not just for like a party or something like that. In those days, you have to remember, Christians did not build church buildings. It was over 200 years after Jesus before the first Christian uh, gathering place was actually built. So you know where they met? They met in homes. And in order to have enough space for the people in a Christian community within a city, they needed large homes. They needed a wealthy person's home to meet in. And so Lydia had a home, and so she provided that for the community. In modern day churches, we don't usually meet in houses, but the dynamic works the same. Just like the early church, we, the practical necessities say we've got to have a space to gather, and someone's got to pay for those places. Now, that's why as a church, we are so thankful for people who gave above and beyond the regular giving during our next campaign to pr provide spaces for our church family to meet in. I wanna address those of you in DeKalb. Hey, DeKalb, you guys doing all right? Uh, aren't you guys thankful that right now you are meeting in a new church home because of the generosity of other people? Now, you other campuses, you probably can't hear them cheering and clapping, so all you need to do is imagine Paul DeHaven doing his happy dance, okay? <laughs> but they're excited. What about Blackberry Creek? Now, I know that every time I mention Blackberry Creek, uh, they cheer very loudly, which means they can't hear what I'm saying right now. So I'm just gonna say, your campus pastor, Eric Hayes, is a big dork, okay? They, they, they didn't hear that, it doesn't matter. I can, but seriously, Blackberry, aren't you excited? This month, your new students, uh, student area is gonna be opened up, the new hub space, so that your junior high ministry, Genesis, has some space. You can have midweek uh, children's ministry for, with Epic. It's gonna be amazing. And it's all because of people like Lydia who stepped up and said, I can create space for our church family to gather. But it's not just buildings. It's also making sure that everyone within the church community is able to participate in what's going on. Growing up, my family did not have a lot of money. Um, and I went to a church kind of like ours where the youth group would do all sorts of trips. A lot of times it was retreats to camps, sort of like what we do with SBR. Sometimes it was fun stuff like, you know, going to a water park or Six Flags or something like that. And I would always wanna go on these trips and I didn't realize it when I was younger, how hard that was for my parents. We just didn't have the money to do those sorts of things. And I found out later that to, in order for me to go, my parents would have to go to my pastor and say, hey, can we get some of this covered? We, we can only do half this time. Can we have all of this covered? Is there any scholarships? And we were never made to feel ashamed. Like I said, I didn't know about this until later. No one ever found out. But what was amazing was that the reason my pastor could say, there's money available, there's scholarships for your son to go, is because there were generous people who said, we can pay more than our fair share. And we had something to take care of other people. And for me, some of those trips are the most significant spiritual moments of my life. I would not be standing here if it weren't for some of the things that happened on those trips. And the reason I was able to do it is because there was someone like Lydia who said, I'm gonna make sure that even the poorest kids in the youth group are always able to participate. Wealth is for welcoming. It's the reason God gives it to you. So you can use the power and privilege it brings for the sake of other people first. Let's move on to the second person that Paul encounters in Philippi. In this scene, we are gonna see a contrast between two different types of power. The power that enslaves and the power that frees. Let's read in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Here we encounter a slave girl, 
a slave girl. Uh, slavery was incredibly common in the Roman Empire. About 15% of the population were slaves. If you were in a, a city, it probably was higher than that. One in three people were usually slaves. There were more slaves in the Roman Empire than there were in uh, America when we had slavery. But unlike American slavery, it was not based on race. Uh, slaves were either prisoners of war or they were debt slaves, but that didn't make it less denigrating for them. Uh, this girl is being exploited. She's being exploited economically. People are making money off of her. Uh, like most slaves, especially female slaves, she was probably being exploited sexually. And in this particular case, she was being exploited spiritually because she, according to the, the text, had an evil spirit, a demon who possessed her. Now, I know that bringing up demons wigs a lot of people out. They're like, what is going on here? And so I feel like I should take a few minutes to explain uh, what we actually think about demons because this just is kind of weird for most modern people. First, I want to address those of you who are just looking at this and thinking, really, Clayton? Like, you believe in demons, like spirits lurking in the shadows, trying to scare people and tempt people and pitchforks and horns and all that? Like, Clayton, seriously, I thought you were smarter than that. First of all, thank you for giving me the benefit of the doubt about my intelligence. Second, though, let, let me ask you to at least consider that it might not be crazy to believe in demons. Remember that the vast majority of the world believes in a spiritual world beyond what we can see that affects the physical. Cultures from Africa to Asia to the Middle East, Latin America, nearly everyone believes in the spiritual world. If you're not part of a Western society, it's assumed. Now, you don't have to agree with them, but you should recognize that to simply dismiss that as if it was stupid and backwards takes a lot of cultural arrogance. More than that, the majority of people in our society, even if they're not particularly re religious, they believe in God, an invisible spiritual being who influences our world. So here's a question. If you are willing to believe in God, why is it that you would dismiss the idea of there being other spiritual beings like angels or demons? And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, but you still read the demon stuff in the Bible and you think, man, I just, I just don't know if I buy that. Here's what I'd say. If you're gonna believe anybody about the nature of the unseen spiritual world, you should believe the guy who knows how to come back from the dead. Like he's a reliable source on these sorts of things. Now, if you haven't decided what you believe about Jesus, you're not sure if you think there's a God, don't worry about the demon and angel stuff, okay? Do not get hung up on that. Just ask the big question first. Uh, ask, is there a reason to believe that there's a God? Uh, look into the evidence for the resurrection. Is that re a reliable idea? Once you figure that out, then we can come back and talk about these sorts of things. Don't let this get in the way of you asking those questions. But let me be clear of what we think about demons. Let me give you a quick overview of what the Bible teaches about this. First is this, demons were not always evil. At one time, they were God's good angels. A long time ago, we don't know exactly when, they rebelled against God, and they have been warring against God and against humanity ever since. In popular culture, demons and the devil are depicted you know, with horns and hooves and red tights and pitchforks and things like that. None of that imagery is in the Bible. Most of that comes from later medieval imagery. And what medieval people were doing is not trying to say, this is what we actually think demons look like. They were actually gathering images from pagan mythology and nature and all sorts of places and using it to actually mock the forces of evil, to make them look like buffoons. Now, in this story, the slave girl is making predictions about the future. And some of you might read that and say, wait, 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 does that mean that demons know the future? And the answer to that question is an emphatic no. The book of Isaiah makes it really, really clear that only God knows the future. It's a test that God gives to say, uh, if, if it comes from me and I can, I'm gonna reliably tell you the future, no other spiritual being can do that. 
demons, the devil, they're not all knowing. They're not all powerful. They're not everywhere. Only God is those things. The, the devil is not God's equal. The, the devil is God's creature. He is limited and God is going to judge him. In fact, that's the reason why hell exists. Jesus said it's the place of final punishment made for the devil and his angels. Satan is not in charge of hell. He's afraid of hell. Now, demons are intelligent, and they've had a long time to study human behavior, and so perhaps this demon was making realistic predictions based on that knowledge. But more likely, this prediction that the slave girl was making, they were vague and mysterious, and they only seemed to come true. If you've ever read ancient pagan prophecies, which I doubt anybody here has read many of those, they are even more fuzzy than modern horoscopes. They're worse than fortune cookies. It's like they could fit any situation. So that's probably what's going on with this demon. But what does it mean to be possessed by a demon? That's a really weird idea, isn't it? Possession is when someone opens themselves up to spiritual forces other than God, other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the forces of evil gain more and more influence in a person's life to the point where that person is basically handed over the keys of the car and the demon is driving. And it's a sad and tragic thing. Now, when people hear this, the first question they usually ask is, could that happen to me? And if you are not a follower of Jesus and you're dabbling in some other kind of spiritual practice, then I I gotta warn you, that's dangerous. I don't know what's gonna happen. Maybe, maybe. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I can tell you very definitively, no, you cannot be possessed by a demon. And here's how I know why. Because God has already taken possession of you. When you came to faith in Christ, God put his Holy Spirit in you. He has moved into the home of your heart and the Spirit does not rent out spare rooms. Now, I should warn you that even as a Christ follower, if you are dabbling in other spiritual practices, you can open yourself up to the influences of evil. So you've gotta be careful with that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, demons, they might be able to camp out on your lawn, but they can never move into your house because that's where God's Spirit lives. The wisest thing I ever heard about demons came from C.S. Lewis. He warns us against two extremes. He says, we should not ignore spiritual evil, pretending it does not exist. If you never think or pray about that, that is not good because God says we actually do have an enemy that fights against us. But on the other hand, we should not obsess about the devil and demons. There, There are some people who think that there's a demon behind everything. You know, when they get sick, it's a demon. When their computer crashes at an inconvenient time, it's a demon. They hear a weird noise at night, it's a demon. They have indigestion, it's a demon. None of that is healthy. Ignoring the spiritual realities or obsessing over them, both are gonna steer you wrong. But let's get back to the story. The servant girl, she starts following Paul and Silas around and she's yelling for several days. And verse 18 says that after a while, Paul became annoyed. He became annoyed. Now that might be the best way to express this. This might've been a kid screaming in the back of the car in a long road trip kind of moment. And he just snapped and said, quiet. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. In Greek, this word here can be translated as irritated, annoyed like this. But in the, the only other place it's used in Acts, it's translated as disturbed, disturbed. The old King James translates it grieved. And I think that's a better translation because Paul is disturbed, he's sad, he's angry about the way this girl is being exploited by her owners, by the demon, and he can no longer tolerate it, so he does something about it. That's how injustice should make us feel, disturbed. 
So Paul casts out the demon. And when he does this, it's not like the movies. It's not like the scary stories. It's not this elaborate ritual. It's not this prolonged back and forth battle with the demon. He simply commands the demon to come out in the authority of Jesus. And in the Bible, that's all it takes. The demon comes out and the slave girl is liberated. But that comes at a great cost to Paul. Let's look at what happens to him and Silas in verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews who are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to practice or accept. Now notice how this works. Paul and Silas, they use their power for the sake of another person, but it costs them. The, the term for this is solidarity. It's when you act on someone else's behalf, but then you suffer the consequences. You join in their suffering because you're trying to help them. They, they impose, uh, oppose injustice, but they become victims of injustice. They act to give freedom to another person, but their freedom is taken away. They use their power, but it puts them at risk. It makes them vulnerable. That throughout history, this is what happens when people fight against injustice. They get pushback. Let's keep reading in verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is gonna become a pattern in the book of Acts. In six out of the next seven chapters, there's some sort of mob violence against Paul and his, and his companions. They, they get thrown in front of these courts to have these trumped up charges put against them. And this again and again is the way that people react to the Christian message coming in and transforming their society. Now, when Paul and Silas are arrested, they're handed over to a third person who ultimately joins the Philippian church, a Roman jailer a Roman jailer. Remember, if Lydia's at the top of the social ladder, the slave girl's at the bottom of the social ladder, this jailer, he's kind of in the middle. This guy probably is a, a former military guy from the Roman uh, army. Uh, in his retirement, he's probably running this jail. And so he's got some people over him and some people uh, below him. Now let's keep reading in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I wanna stop here because I just love, love, love this verse. This is the verse that inspired Michelle and I to name our son Silas Paul. Now, when he was born, I texted Pastor Jim, hey, you know, he's been born, here's his name. And Jim texted back this, with a name like that, he's gonna do some serious jail time. <laughs> Hope that's not a prophecy. Jim's a very encouraging guy. Um, but we, we just love this image of singing at midnight, singing at midnight. Don't you wanna be a person who's characterized by that? Like, what would it take to have that sort of hope? To, to be in a dark place like that, but to say, this is not the end of the story. This is not all that can be said about me. When everything is taken from you, to say, I still have enough because I have Christ. He is all that I need. I, I wanna be that sort of person who has hope in the darkest places, singing at midnight. Can you imagine what the other prisoners are thinking, who are these crazy people out of their mind doing this? Verse 26. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, that the, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. 
Now let me explain why the jailer thought of killing himself in this moment. He knew that if he had lost the prisoners, his commander would come through and execute him. If you've been reading along in Acts this week, there was a story about this in Acts 12 where this happened. Peter gets set free, the guards are executed. So this jailer knows he was asleep on the job. It it was his duty to to protect the the jail, but he didn't do it and they escaped. Now, even if there was an earthquake, he was gonna take the blame. And if he was executed, he would have died in shame and in dishonor in that society. And in Roman society, your honor was a big deal. And so he figures if I'm gonna die anyway, I'm gonna do it by my own hand and save some of my honor to be remedied from some of the shame. So this guy's life and his honor are on the line And Paul and Silas do something very, very strange. They they have a chance to escape. They could have walked right out. They have been handed power, the power to save their own lives, to to get their own freedom. But they say, what can we do with this power? They choose to use it for the sake of other people first. They sacrifice their freedom in order to save someone's life, someone that they've got every reason to hate. They shouldn't be on this guy's side. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? That's what Jesus did for us. Paul and Silas are living out a parable of the gospel. And look at what happens as a result. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. When they demonstrate the gospel through their lives, they get a chance to speak the gospel through their words. The the jailer is dumbfounded. This is not how prisoners behave. Singing in the stocks, foregoing a chance at freedom, sparing the life of your captor, who does that? What what would make someone do that? He's gotta be thinking, "What, what, what do they know that I don't know? Like clearly my life is in a mess at this moment, but they've got something figured out. What what must I do? What must I do to be saved? And so Paul and Silas, they tell him, well, you you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You simply believe. Salvation is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's not something you have to do. It's something that Jesus has done for you. It's not about using your power to rescue yourself. It's about calling on Jesus to use his power to rescue you. When the Bible talks about believing, it it doesn't just mean agreeing with some facts, saying, yeah, I think that's probably true. It goes one step beyond agreeing with the facts. It's trusting that those things are so true that if Jesus has done these things, that I don't need to be in control anymore. I can surrender to him. I, I can throw my life into his hands. He can be the one to rescue me. He can be the one to run my life. That's what belief is. Here's the question. If you've never done that, what are you waiting for? The jailer and his household, they hear this message and they believe. Verse 33 says this, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now notice this again, the jailer and the household believe immediately without delay they're baptized, first opportunity. The jailer brought them into the, his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. One of my favorite books is a little book by Andy Crouch. It's called Strong and Weak. The whole book is about power and how to use it. And what Crouch does is he gives a guideline for when you're using power to determine whether or not it's probably gonna lead to injustice or lead to flourishing. 
He says, you have to ask this question. When I use this power, who is going to be made vulnerable? Who's going to be made vulnerable, me or somebody else? In other words, who's going to have to take a risk in order for me to use my power in this way? Like if there's going to be a price to be paid, if there's going to be a consequence, who's it probably going to fall on? Is it going to fall mostly on me or is it mostly on somebody else? If the answer to that question consistently when you use power is somebody else is going to become vulnerable and not yourself, then that power is probably being used in an unjust way. True flourishing comes when you use your power and your privilege in a way where you become vulnerable for the sake of other people. You take a risk so that others can benefit. It's like what Lydia did when she welcomed the church into her home. It's a social risk. It's a financial cost on her for the sake of them. It's what Paul and Silas do when they free the slave girl. They suffer injustice as a result. When they stay in their prison in order to save the jailer's life, they're using the power they have at risk to themselves for benefit of other people. We've got to ask the question, where do you have power and influence in your world? Go through the realms of your life. Think, think about work. How do you use the power you have at work, especially if you've got any form of leadership there? What, what do you use your influence for? Do you use it to uh, elevate yourself, to assign blame to other people and take credit? Or, or do you highlight and empower people who might get overlooked? Do you work just to make sure you can accomplish your tasks or do you look at the goals and objectives of other people and say, how can I help them contribute to that? Think about your home. Home is a place where it's so easy for us to get really selfish. I mean, this is my space. This is the place where I rest and relax. And so we use our energy and attention to serve ourselves there. But think about how you influence the people that you live with especially parents, you have incredible power in your kid's life. If we asked your kids, would they say that you use your authority, your influence in a way that builds them up or in a way that costs them? If you're in a marriage or a dating relationship, that's incredible power to, to know that someone loves you and is committed to you. People use that in all sorts of ways. Are you using that in a way to manipulate your partner so that they do what you want, so that you get your way? Are you thinking, what are their needs? How can I serve them, even if it costs me? When you look at the world and you think about social issues, are you mostly thinking about how policies and ideas are gonna affect you and your group? Are you thinking, how can I use my voice? How can I use my vote to, to serve the interests of the most vulnerable? In friendships, when you're thinking, who am I gonna text to hang out with? Are you thinking, I'm gonna uh, you know, go to the same person that I'm always with because I feel comfortable with them? Are you thinking, I'm gonna look out for that person that I know needs a friend, is going through a hard time? That's what I'm gonna hang out with. When you're in your church, do you come here and say, how can I use my time and my gifts and my energy to serve? Or are you just here saying, what's in it for me? How can I receive? Especially if you're a longtime insider here. If you've been here for a while and it comes to the point where when you walk in here, you feel comfortable, you feel familiar. Familiarity and comfort in a space is an incredible power that you have. It's an incredible power that you have. And you can either use that to say, you know what, I'm just gonna connect with the people I know already and you know, look out for myself here. Or you can say, I'm gonna use the familiarity and comfort I have here to help other people who are new and, and, and unsure here feel that sense of comfort as well. As you go through your week, every once in a while, pause and ask yourself, okay, what power, what influence, what privilege do I have here? And then use that power and privilege for the sake of others first. I wanna conclude with this. I want you to imagine being in a gathering of the church in Philippi, just a few years after these events. It's an evening, it's a work day, and you're walking to Lydia's house for the gathering. 
that as you enter, you smell the evening meal being cooked, some fish and some vegetables. And you look and you see the table is being set. They're setting out the bread and the wine. And as everyone prepares to eat, you look around the table and you see Lydia. She's dressed in her finest. And right next to her is the slave girl. And the slave girl is actually wearing one of Lydia's designs. She is dressed in something that in that society, she never, ever would have been able to afford. But there she is talking with Lydia quietly as other people gather. The, the jailer is over here and he's actually uh, talking with two of Lydia's servants. And his son is over there talking to a Roman magistrate who after the earthquake came to investigate what was going on. And he too heard the message of Jesus. And they're actually gathered with a group of a Jewish family who normally never would have talked to a Roman official. And they've got their kids leaning at their sides. And as you look around, it feels like a family gathering. People are greeting each other with hugs and with kisses. They're passing food to each other. They're sharing stories with each other. In a lot of ways, this feels more like your home than your actual home. That this is the household where you really belong. This is your family. And yet, this is like nothing, nothing you've ever encountered in your world before. Where people of every walk of life, slave and free, men and women, rich and poor, citizens and foreigners, mix and mingle as if they were brothers and sisters, as if they were equals. That no one in your world does this. You know, even so, you know that not just here in Philippi, but around the world, you've heard about it happening in Antioch and Ephesus and Corinth, these little communities popping up, doing this new thing. And you, you realize that this is so hard. It's been a tough couple of years. This dinner right now feels very pleasant, but it has been difficult to learn how to be this sort of community. And you know that Paul knows how hard it is because he's written a letter to your church. It just arrived yesterday and the elders announced that they plan to read it tonight before you celebrate communion. And as they read the letter, uh, just a, a little bit into it, there's something that Paul says that captures what it takes to actually make this family work. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as the elders pass around the bread and the cup, this is what you're thinking about. Your, your savior, King Jesus, who used his power and his privilege as God for the sake of other people, including you. Let's pray. God, we want to be this sort of community of people who know that you have given so much that you have used your power, your privilege for our sake to rescue us. God, we wanna be people who do the same for others. God, we pray that you would make us people who, who look out and say, what are the needs of other people and recognize them so we can respond. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would make us that way. 
And God, as we celebrate communion, we pray that you would show us again what it is that you did for us in sending Jesus to have his body broken and his blood shed so that we could be made family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.